0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the show. And today we have got Andy Graham with us, who is a prolific HMO investor. And you've probably seen some of Andy's properties from Smart Property on Facebook and around the internet. And I think it's fair to say that Andy's inspiring loads of people at the moment with his interior design work and bringing the HMO industry probably to the next level. So Andy, good morning.
1: Rick, good morning and thank you. What a uh, wonderful uh, introduction from you and I think this is a long overdue um, sort of chat between you and I, isn't it, Rick?
0: Absolutely. We've been sort of promising to do this forever in a day, but, you know, I think life just gets in the way, doesn't it? And people do forget, Andy, that first and foremost, you know, we are property investors um, and that does take an awful lot of time and trying to juggle all of, you know, sort of that and the social media stuff, isn't that easy, is it?
1: It, no, it's not. And um, generating good content, Rick, takes time to think about it, to create, to curate it and to get it out in the right way as well. So you're absolutely right. You know, to be able to do this, this and, and, and provide value. I think it's really important that you're you're doing it and you've got the experience and you can share that. But it does take time to to do it all at once. And we are only human and there are only 24 hours in each day, aren't there?
0: Absolutely. And again, people don't understand, you know, you can't, well, you can, sometimes we do, but sort of posting things on social media off, off the cuff really quickly and fast doesn't really create that much valuable content. But the way that, you know, we put our posts together, and certainly with yours, you've got to think about it. You've got to see what value people get from the post and how we can inspire others. So Andy, let's talk about, first of all, your company is called Smart Property. Um, what, what does Smart Property do?
1: Yes. So we do two things, Rick, really quite simple. We have an an investment arm to the business and we have now a management arm to the business. Now, we've always specialised in HMOs. Going back 10 years, um, that's what I did. uh, And my business partner, Nick, um, he was doing that as well. Um, It wasn't 10 years ago that we met and started Smart Property, but um, it was sort of the fact that we were both doing that, that kind of of led us to to meet and then subsequently build smart property. So we work with investors and we buy lots of HMO properties, predominantly uh, city center, sort of fairly prime student property now. Uh, And then we needed to be able to manage this. It was important for us and our investors that actually we could look after their investments long term. And so we built a management service around our business as well, which we extended to rent-to-rent properties and also to uh, a few private landlords on a, on a standard management basis, which is something we're just dipping our toes in now.
0: Okay, so just so I can sort of pick pick the bones out of this a little bit so I can have an understanding of exactly what the business model is. So you would, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Andy. So you would go out, source a property on behalf of a third party manage the refurb do the refurb to a great standard tenant it and then manage it on behalf of your client is that correct
1: yeah, exactly. It's yeah, it really is that simple, Rick. And I think a lot of people um, concern themselves about you know how to structure you know a, a business or a HMO business or maybe it's an SA business. But actually, um, there are there are a million ways to skin a cat, and and you know the simplest way is to do it just as you've outlined. And we just take fees at various stages of of, of each kind of piece of the investment deal.
0: Okay, so um, in terms of managing other people's portfolio and slash versus your own, do you have your own portfolio as well?
1: Yes, I do. And kind of that's, that is where it all started. And um, as an investor yourself, you're probably aware that along the way you get presented with different opportunities and um, sometimes you're able to take advantage of those so so for me and, and for nick we've been blessed to meet some really fantastic people who've um believed in us and believed in what we've done so alongside the the model that we've just outlined we've also had the opportunity to own Um, various properties with our investors and it it does get a little bit complicated because you can have a share here and a share there um, with one investor and other investors. But overall, you know, and and it's still important to me and it's still important to Nick, um, we do have a business and we we run a business and that's sort of a cash flowing strategy. But we both very much like to continue investing and and buying our own um, properties for our own personal portfolios and that's really important to us.
0: So how do you manage the split, Andy? I mean, do you, is it something that you set yourself and, and Nick a goal where you say, right, I'm going to have five properties of our own this year, or did you just kind of happen across them?
1: We we just happen across them. We've we've got a very sort of good mutual understanding um, about sort of what it is that we we both want to get out of of business and working together. And um, yeah, everybody's circumstances are slightly different as well. The one sort of important thing for anyone doing this um, to remember is. There there are only so many properties that you can buy. And if you if you want to buy sort of good quality properties, there's always going to be um a question of sort of whether you're conflicted to buy it yourself or buy it for your investor, or does it go to one investor and not another? So that's something we're very aware of. And and um you know we we're we kind of it's it's an absolute priority for us that our investors, you know, do first and foremost get kind of the first first choice on on, on the investments that we, we do see in. For some of those investors, we've built multiple properties as well, and they've given us a lot more opportunity than we would have, would have otherwise um, sort of had anyway. So um, they do tend to get the first refusal on good properties, but on in sort of the long run, that's certainly paid back. And we've had the opportunity to buy lots of other good properties around the edge as well.
0: Okay, awesome. That's a great answer. We've kind of done this back to front today on this show. We normally go back into a little bit of your past and your history first, but we kind of straight into the HMO side of things. So when you do your properties, Andy, now, um, things have changed. And you know, you've been investing, uh, I think you put on your Facebook post yesterday for 10 years or so now. How do you think the market's changed within that period? And what big differences have you seen?
1: Uh, that's a great question, Rick, and something I've been asked a lot. And you know, it's a question I really do like to answer as well, because I find the you know the the, the whole topic of investment really interesting. Um, not just HMOs, the micro economy, the macro economy. So, I suppose I'm part of a generation and um, that, that's that's only seen interest at at low rates, and that's you know from what I understand fairly unusual Um, that's remained constant. But while that has remained constant, what I've seen is the, um, the standards of what people are doing, rise and rise and rise. And my interpretation of this is because the competition has kind of forced the standards, driven the standards up. So what we've seen for 10 years now sort of steadily increasing property values that started to narrow yields. It started to narrow yields in sort of London and the Southeast to a point where it doesn't really make that much sense. And, you know, it's no secret that um, the government kind of are trying to... Um, you know, squeeze private landlords out of the sector as well. So the corporate companies are, have come in and been able to invest huge sums of money. So for example, in, in purpose-built student accommodation, particularly in our sector, and that's really pushed standards up and up and up. So the private investors have had to up their game as well. Um, so I think as well as sort of rising values, the, the, the biggest, biggest sort of shift in the market that I've seen, especially in the HMO market is standards rising, which which is you know fantastic, uh, but it does make for a very, very competitive environment.
0: Yeah um, but I like anything I think and it's a great answer but I think there's always room in a crowded market um, and I think you know history dictates when we go back and look at some of the most successful companies like Apple and like Samsung and now um, Huawei that are coming in to challenge all the bigger players. There's always room if you get your product right and I think it's fair to say Andy that you have. So I want to talk to you a little bit about your design spec and if people that are listening to the podcast if you check Andy's Facebook page out I think it's smart property Andy is that right
1: yeah that's right Rick
0: and there's loads of case studies on there um, and he's always working on something and you know always adopting a very a very different design um, for each of his properties so Andy I've got a couple of things that I want to ask you so first of all I do worry that market changes do happen very quickly so that's the first thing and the second thing is that what was good five years ago even only five years ago isn't good enough today. And when you do the the high-end, high-spec properties that you and lots of other people now are, are turning out, I do worry that they are going to be harder to keep up to date in five years. So what I mean by that is wooden cladding, um, you know, lots of green type foliage that people are hanging off ceilings and things like that now, rather than just a feature wall and a feature, you know, piece of wallpaper, which could be corrected very quickly. What are your thoughts on that? Are you quite confident that this sort of fashion is going to be around for a while?
1: No, Rick, I, you know, I really do think that, that they're just trends and trends change and they tra- change very very quickly so we expect that some of the things that we do now so you mentioned uh, some wooden paneling and we, we've done that in probably you know six seven eight nine maybe even ten properties uh, and it looks fantastic and um, it, it does it, look it Thanks, Rick. And um, tenants love it. So when they see the pitch online, you know it's really attractive, and that sort of really boosts the inquiry numbers that we get. But we do expect that 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 trend's going to change, and you know I don't quite know what it's going to be in in ten years. I think the big one that we're all gonna gonna kind of be uh, paying with is is metro tiles because we've all been doing metro tiles for the last sort of three four years, and I suspect at some point we'll think, gosh, what were we doing putting all these tiles in? Um, but for me, yeah. You know, in a crowded market, it is about um, finding those trends. Maybe even being a trailblazer and setting trends, which yeah, you know, I'm not quite sure we've been able to do yet. Um, but some of the stuff that I I have seen, yeah, I definitely look at it and think, great, you know, I want to try that because that looks looks so good. So I think we've got a plan for the future, and investment is all about looking long term and factoring these sorts of things in. So, you know, we are looking and expecting periodic refurbishments, periodic refresh of the properties and that might be in the form of um, going in and taking some of this stuff down, maybe changing it for something else. Um, Hopefully the open plan trend doesn't change because that will be a difficult one to um, reverse engineer.
0: Yeah, and it is hard to plan, isn't it, Andy, for the future? I mean, going back, you know, we, I mean, I don't mind admitting that you know, we've got a very diverse portfolio, we don't manage for other people, um, our portfolio is our own. So I suppose the risk level really is just with us, which is okay. Um, but we still, we've got a very different range. So We've got sort of mid range properties that are still Magnolia. And I don't mind admitting we still have properties in our portfolio that've got the odd bit of wood chip still knocking around in there but then we have got some you know some of our latest properties and um, we do like to say that, that they are high end but in terms of um the the decor is is feature walls and feature wallpaper but it still looks great um, for our area works really well what do you think about the middle market Andy? do you think the um do you think now that you know the magnolia wood chip is it completely dead is there still a market for that
1: no, I, you know, I think, I think it's about understanding the market. And I, you hit the nail on the head there, Rick, when you said you know, it still works in your market. Um, so, again, good, good investment is all about understanding your market and, and who your end user is. So for us, it's students. And students typically have um, budgets that they've got to set themselves and try and live by. Some have more, some have less. Now, for us, it was easier to identify ourselves, uh, you know, in a, in a sort of the top, the higher tier of accommodation. It, it worked for our investors, and it and it worked for our our landlords and sort of our brand. But there's absolutely a place in the middle as well. So the woodchip stuff is still good. These are still really well located properties. They've got good sized bedrooms, um, but perhaps the adjustment is just in the price. Um, and and it doesn't need to always be sort of the, the the very top end. Um, and there's definitely, definitely still a really big market for that. And it's all about value for money for me. Um, you know, especially in the student market, but the professional market as well, not everybody wants to pay 130 pound a week for something superb with an ensuite They're They're actually quite happy with just a room, that's fine that mum and dad would um, be okay with so that they can save up some money because in a year or two's time they'd like to buy their own place so I think the middle is fine I think it's just understanding where you are and how to target that middle market and, and if you if you're good at that and you specialize in that then then that's great I think.
0: Yeah, that's a great answer again. Andy, you mentioned students. So my first question is, you know, how in your experience do the students manage the properties? Are they respecting everything that you do there? Or is it again a bit of a, a test and measure process?
1: I think I've, I've probably got enough experience now to actually make a kind of a a, a measured decision. And on the whole, um probably to kind of the the disbelief of, of some people because i think students are still very much stigmatized but they're fantastic we have maybe in about 400 odd tenants one or two difficult tenants who um, are maybe a bit slow on their rent or are a little bit problematic when it comes to reporting maintenance issues and things like that but actually we've We've had more problems with our professional lets than we have the student lets, and I think there are a few reasons for that, and the big one is the um the sort of the cohesion in a household. It's difficult to to kind of create that and force it on five individuals who haven't previously known one another. but if it's a group of students who do know each other, they're all friends and they typically know one another's parents because they come and see them at uh, university periodically. They generally get on much better. Um, they um, are happy to work with you. You don't have to send out the same communication five times to tell five individuals. You can send out one, one email to the group and you can have a lead tenant um, who tends to manage things. So on the whole, Rick, they're a really good tenant group. And I think if you respect them and you give them products um, that, that they've paid for, then, you know you'll get that same respect back and and that you know I on the whole I yeah I think they're a fantastic um, sort of tenant group
0: so you're renting whole houses rather than individual ASTs?
1: yeah so for all of our student lets which is probably about ninety um, percent of the portfolio now actually um, we do one single AST for the whole property whether that's four rooms five six eight um, whatever and that it's you know, much less admin and you've got the great benefit of having a lot more security uh, on your tenancy agreement because they're all liable for that amount joint and severally so if somebody does defaults um, you know there is a bit of pressure from the remaining group to um, get that get that covered so it might be that somebody has to leave university for for you know circumstances beyond their control and we'll always try and work with with them for that but what you also get is an incentive for the, the rest of the group to try and find a suitable replacement, which is really helpful because you wouldn't necessarily get that with a professional let.
0: And when somebody else comes into the house, Andy, would you then just, um, what, what's your preferred method? Would you do um, an addendment or would you um, start the whole contract again and just get them all to sign a new contract?
1: It will depend on the time of year. So at this time of the year, so we're in April now, we're really at the tail end of the, the student season. So we've got pretty much everything um, signed and sealed for the sort of July to September move-ins this year. There are a few that are a bit slower. That might be because we, we've only just finished the refurbishments or um, a whole group dropped out and we've got a new group in. But if, it's, if it was all signed... And somebody then had to sort of change their mind. We do um, a deed of assignment. Um, But if it was sort of before the contract was all signed, we'd just just get a new contract done and get them all signed onto a new contract.
0: Just try and keep it as simple as you possibly can. So we kind of verged off onto tenants there a little bit. I don't know how we did that. Going back into the design before we sort of close that aspect and move on. um, Who gets the inspiration, Andy? Who is the design? I don't like to use the word guru. I think guru is a word that's, floated around the internet in the wrong context, but I am going to. Who is the design guru in your business? Where does the inspiration come from?
1: Uh, it's, it's, the design side was probably from me initially, but... Um, you know, like I'm, yeah. You know, if there is a guru, it's definitely not me. And you know, my inspiration comes from the same resources that you and I use every day, Rick. So Facebook, uh, the internet, Instagram, people I know, networks, contacts. Um, so you know, my background's definitely not in interior design at all. Um, I just simply thought a better standard. You know, there's a product for a better standard. So I look at what other people are doing, and in, in the same way, I'm sure that they look at what we're doing. And I just try new things and for me it's a bit of trial and error and we've definitely done ones that we've thought that doesn't quite work Um, maybe we need to change it or let's not do that again Um, But now, you know, my team, our team are fantastic. So, you know, they've inherited kind of an interest in this as well. And, you know, from a brand side, a kind of brand point of view as well. And um, now it's a real team effort. And actually, you know, I think um, I'm probably not that much use anymore, to be honest, Rick.
0: (laughs) (laughs) you become the key person of influence, you know, and that's what happens in business. If you're, you've got to have someone driving it, you've got to have somebody in the front marketing it. So, you know, I, I know exactly where you're coming from. And with that, I mean, I sit in my office all day. I'm very often, as soon as I walk into the main office, everyone's sort of, I don't know what's going on anymore. And everyone says, oh, it's all fine. Everything's fine. And I kind of isolated, but you've got to have somebody that's, you know, out there bringing new business in. And I think that's probably where you are right now. You know, the key person of influence for every business, real, their job is to be out there driving in more business into the, um, in, into the funnel, if you like. So I think that's probably where you are, Andy, right now. Andy, when you put stuff into a property um do you run this by the 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 owner you know, the investor first or do they just give you a full rein and say you know what crack on just do it and i'll look at it after you've finished and have you ever completed on a property when the owner said you know what i really don't like that
1: um so we're talking about rent to rent here i assume aren't we rick um now you know generally on the whole we've we've kind of once once that contract is signed, they've been happy to hand it over, and very rarely have they asked to go back in at all. Um, so, but we do in the contract we do make sure that we've got the capacity to do you know the things that we want to do. So we don't move walls, um, we don't do that sort of thing, and we have asked for specific permission in writing where we've wanted to, for example, add a bathroom um but on the whole we're talking a step that's of cosmetics so carpets decorating furniture um that sort of thing and maybe some upgrades to sort of the, the health and safety aspects, like like fire mm. um alarms emergency lights which again is all sort of included in what we're allowed to do as part of the contract so but i think on the whole we've got a good reputation and they're happy with that and they trust us now which it's really important, something I'm actually really proud of. Um, and Andrew, I remember when we were sorry, gone. I remember when we were sort of just starting Rick, and we were we were always very anxious about sort of whether people would trust us um because we didn't have that same track record, but that's something that we've we've nurtured over time now so that we do feel like people yeah you know, are quite happy to hand over that responsibility and trust to us.
0: That's a great lead into what i'm going to ask you in a second, just just before we close this one off, what sort of um on the property that you own and the the spec that you're doing are you seeing a significant uplift in value once you've completed your refurbishments
1: really interesting question Rick actually um and the honest answer is a no um, yeah it's it, that is the honest answer now. It's primarily because of where we buy, we buy sort of, so we're buying across six cities now and in every, in each location, um, you know, there's an article four direction in place. And what that means is it's very, very competitive to buy. So you're already buying at usually, you know, a sort of a 10% um, premium against the, sort of the postcode, um, average I would say. And once that's already factored in, you, you know, The lenders, valuers, you know, know that, they recognize that. They're they're happy that that is the value because somebody would pay for it. But to then squeeze another 10% out just for good design, you know, is very, very difficult. Um, And it's not really something that we've been able to do. We have seen it, you know, uplist some value where we've added rooms, um, where we've added actual square footage for sure, but not on aesthetics, not on cosmetic work.
0: Okay, that's a great answer, um, and I think it really is dependent, isn't it, Andy? Where you are investing, absolutely, um, Andy. You know, you haven't always done this, and you mentioned earlier that when you started, it was a slog. Like anything is in business, it's really hard to get it moving. So, what is your background?
1: I uh, our head office is in Sheffield now, Rick, and the reason it's sort of ended up here. One of the reasons it's we've ended up with a head office in Sheffield is because I studied here ten years ago. Um, Maybe a little bit more than 10 years ago. And I studied as a physio. So I graduated. I actually went and then specialized. And I moved down to the south southwest, actually, for, for several years um, practicing. And I became a cl- clinical specialist. And I did enjoy my work, but I didn't love it. And I always had an interest in property. And when I graduated, the first thing I decided I was going to do was save up and get myself a property. But I didn't want to buy a property to live in myself because I was pretty sure I was going to end up moving on um, and moving around, which I did. So I bought a um, a rental property. I bought a student rental property. And that was 2000 and I think it was January 2010 or late 2009. Um, And that was the first one. And that went well. And I continued with my professional career, so I kept working for a couple more years, and I was able to save a little bit more money, and I bought another one, and and it just happened like that, and gradually, my sort of interest turned into sort of um, a consideration to actually build a business out of it, and and sort of then questioning how to do that, and then I started getting out, getting active, networking, and I met Nick, my business partner now, who's you know who's fantastic, and he's. Um, you know, he, Nick's a real investment guy. He really understands the numbers and that's, you know, that was sort of eye-opening and definitely the best decision I've made to date in my business career. And and gradually, I just transitioned further and further away from Visio into the property world. And I think I've probably not done any sort of clinical work for well over three years now, maybe pushing towards four years in fact, Rick.
0: So you mentioned earlier that it was really hard to start with. Um, what sort of obstacles, Andy, were you met with when you began your business?
1: The first one was my mother <laughs> because she thought I was mad for sort of trying to buy a student property, which actually at the time was three, over 300 miles away from where I lived. Um, so she thought it was a bad idea. Um, and so I kind of pushed through that barrier and bought it anyway. And you know at that time saving just getting some cash together wasn't easy um, but lending was easier than it is now you didn't need the landlord experience to own a hmo etc cetera. Um, that is one of the things that has changed rick um, for me logistics was was always an issue i didn't happen to sort of live in an area where um, property sort of was was sort of achievable uh, when i was in the southwest it was very very expensive so i was buying in the midlands where it was a bit cheaper so logistically, it was a bit of a bit of a hassle. Um, financially, it was it was tough, and I you know didn't know anything about raising private finance at that point. Um, and then, of course, there are there were the usual restrictions to lending, which meant you couldn't over leverage. It was easier to get a mortgage when you had some cash, but you couldn't over leverage. And I certainly wasn't aware of sort of being able to refinance everything out and move to a next deal. So it was logistics and and access to funding for me, Rick.
0: Andy, lots of people on social media platforms at the moment and you, know, you mentioned it earlier and the what ifs and very often when people start in property, they do have a lot of mindset issues. And one of which is, what if my family don't get it? And I think that's a really good case in point. Um, and that's really common. So what if my family don't get it? What if I can't find any deals? And what if I can't find any money to fund the deals? So how hard was it for you to start raising your profile in order to start attracting investors?
1: It's one thing, Rick, that actually I think was, was easier than anything else. that was never really a a kind of a a barrier um, to scaling once we recognized that it was possible and it was just applying ourselves in the right way. So, you know, when when I was younger uh, and, you know, in the early days of the business, we didn't necessarily think that sort of being sort of a public you know business or having a face to the business and putting ourselves out there was something we needed to do we thought we needed to go and find investors and actually this is something that I tell everybody who asks me this question the way to really think about raising private finance is to understand that lots and lots of people with um, the credibility and the funding and the desire to buy the sorts of property that that you can buy are out there but they just don't know where you are and they don't know you're there so put yourself out on the shelf um, in any way that you you know that you can that suits you and that doesn't mean that you have to be buying um, you know plots of land and building magnificent houses or doing super high end hmos there is a market for everything and an appetite for everything so the big one to me is is you know the, the big piece of advice from me to, to anybody who's looking and, 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 and considering you know, trying to raise private finances, get yourself on the shelf, um, show people what you do, show people where you are, let people know you and understand you and your values and people will come to you because people will, will invest in people.
0: The other aspect as well, Andy, is, and um, we get that asked this an awful lot, is that, first of all, we can't find deals. And of course, then the money, which we've just covered. And you're finding deals all of the time. And of course, you're finding money as well to, uh, to go with that. So where do you get your deals from? How do you find them?
1: Most of them are from the open market, Rick. We, again, very, very, very uh, competitive markets that we operate in. So you know, it's you know reasonable to assume that if you were a landlord selling your property, you're probably gonna to want to put it on the open market where you, know, you got the best chance of getting the best price. So working with agents is really important for us. Some of those do go through the auction room and a variety go through different agents, some that we've bought with before and have good relationships with. Mm and some that we, we don't know so well and you know we're still a bit fresh with. And is it um, fair
0: to say, Andy, that there are deals there, you've just got to look for them?
1: Absolutely, Rick. It's it's recognising the opportunity in a deal. And yeah. the, the most important thing is being um, almost religious about your effort to find these deals because anything good that pops up will be gone tomorrow. Um, and it's about being the first in the line.
0: Being persistent. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There are deals out. you've got to look for them. And I think it's about being persistent. You know, as soon as people start to give up, that's when things start to go wrong. So let's talk about your current projects then, Andy. I know you, you always seem to be working on an awful lot. Um, what are you working on right now?
1: Yeah, so at the minute, it's got a property in development. Um, it's getting a big extension on the back and a kind of a full refurbishment. Um, we've just finished a HMO in Sheffield that's just being tenanted now I'm really pleased with that and it's all ready we've got tenants signed up for July Um, Nick is handling the purchase of another one down in Leicester so that's gonna be a six bed HMO Um, great location great property and um, it's gonna need a a full scheme and, and that's also getting an extension under full planning as well and We're also working on a big deal at the minute with an investor. It's one of the bigger deals that we've tried to get done. And if we do do it, it will be the biggest one. It's a 25 bed student block. Hmm. Um, So there's a lot involved in that. It's not something that we actually need to refurbish because it's, yeah, in a fantastic condition. It's up and running. It's 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 wonderful. It's exactly how we would have done it if we'd have been developing it ourselves. But it's off market, and we're just going through the motions of um, kind of getting that purchase through.
0: Sounds interesting. Really, uh, really uh, excited to follow that journey, Andy. Andy, let's talk a little bit about the government now. And, and I know it's a bit of a tongue-in-cheek topic, especially with what's happening. I've never seen so many changes in such a short period of time than there has been in the last two to three years, specifically for HMO properties. So let's just sort of go back a little bit. So first of all, we We had the Deregulation Act. Then we had the Right to Rent Act. Then we've got Clause 24, which affects all of the private rental sector. Then we had the Mandatory Licensing Act that's changed. Then we have the tenant fee ban that's coming in on the 1st of June. And now we've got the um, Section 21 ban that kind of loomed uh, yesterday and it was announced yesterday. What do you think the future is for the private rental sector, but specifically HMOs? How hard can it get?
1: Well, it's, you know, if we, if we were to underline that and summarize what we think, you know, it's very clear that this is an attempt to, uh, um, commercialize the, the private rental sector. Um, that's certainly my opinion, Rick. Now, I think there is still an opportunity for private landlords who just want a few properties. Um, but you've got to be a professional landlord now. You can't do it and just you know, happen to own a property be an accidental landlord you've got to know your stuff you've got to know all these changes and you've got to know the legislation like you've just outlined and for many people that'll just be you know a step too far and they'll they'll just not have the time the capacity the desire to do it so you know I think inevitably the this the pool the size of the private rental sector will shrink um, not necessarily in numbers of properties available to rent but in in terms of numbers of landlords i think we will see that. Decline. And,
0: you, and did you think they, the government are trying to regulate the industry to just to make it better? Or do you think it is an attack on private landlords in order to try and get some of the housing stock back that they say that we're gobbling up?
1: I think it is. And I think it is an attack on the landlords. It, it's it, the speed at which it's moving as well is, 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 is making it very difficult for even the bodies like um, Arla to step in on behalf of landlords and present landlords views and opinions. Um, and I think there's, you know, there's definitely, um, uh, you know, a reason for that. Mm, so, well you know, it's not something that, you know, people like you and I have a huge amount of influence on and we've got to pull our socks up. We've got to get on with it. We've got to do it. And we've got to find ways of making sure that our businesses are still profitable.
0: Yeah, and I think that's really important, Andy, that we do have to just get on with it, you know, and we are professional investors, what we tend to do is adapt in order to survive. And when people do exit the market, it only then creates opportunities for other people to go in, repurpose, redesign, and and step into their footsteps. So, I mean, I think it is hard and it does make it difficult, especially for the, the likes of you and I and, and the thousands of subscribers that are on this podcast that do things properly. And it is the minority of people that make it harder for everybody else. But it just seems to get harder and harder. And we do adapt. And what are your thoughts, Andy? You know, it's breaking news yesterday. Um, there's not an awful lot, really, I guess, that you can comment on. But personally, what are your thoughts on the the, the brand new section twenty four uh, sorry section twenty one um, ban that was announced yesterday
1: again it's, it's, it's disappointing that it's been kind of yeah it looks like it's going to be pushed through you know very very quickly i think from 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 my point of view personally it's probably not something that's going to affect us and um, that significantly because of the way that we um, run our tenancies and the types of tenants that we have, but it definitely is going to be a consideration for people with professional lets, um, more so. And then it is going to be a consideration for the private landlord, um, you know, just on, on a single let basis. Um, it, it's a tough one. I, you know, I, I think it will probably, and and probably only ever has sort of, um, a, a, Sort of Applied to a very very small proportion of the private rental sector anyway I think I read maybe three percent of you know have to have had to use um, these section 21 notices before so hopefully it doesn't affect too many people um, and, I, and I suppose you know it will it will urge caution when people are you know signing up tenants and making sure that they do get the right tenants and mm. you know maybe yeah. With that risk you know it, it could actually drive rental values up more because when we see risk go up, you know people tend to have to pay more for it, and landlords will always pass that cost back on
0: I know, and it just seems to be everything that the government seems to be doing is going to be to the detriment of the tenant because you know we are in business and in order to make a profit of course we have to charge so yeah i mean i'll be interested to see how this rolls out um i know that they're, they're talking about expediting it and moving it out quickly um you know i mean this surely they're going to have to have a look at section eight as well to make some tweaks with section eight because you know we, we've got to make sure that we future proof our business as well this leads me on to um on suite rooms. I mean, this has always been a topic. Now, you know, ever since we've been investing, this this subject has never really been out of the um, the social media um, forums. It's been out there all the time. Lots of different opinions. Do you do on suite rooms, Andy? Is that something that your properties are um, are going towards?
1: No, on the whole, Rick, we don't. We've got some on suite rooms in the portfolio. And the honest, sort of truth is that uh, people do prefer them people prefer an ensuite room i certainly would um but i think if you circle back around to kind of our earlier point it, you know it's all about value for money not everybody wants to pay 125 pound a week for the privilege of having an ensuite room they're happy with 100 pound a room for a good quality um house with a good sized bedroom so it it's really again about understanding your market, knowing where you are in that market and the calculation to work out the viability for me, you know, it's very, very simple. I'll factor in what it's going to cost to put an en suite there. What I think we're going to be able to achieve as a result of having that en suite, look at the payback, look at the return on that additional investment and then work out whether or not it's viable. And, And usually on the whole, because we're pushing rents anyway, with the the t- type of properties and the specs that we do we can't push it an extra 10-15 percent just by having an suite. so it generally makes it non-viable for us at the minute rick
0: and what's your thoughts on the single banding of council tax is that something that your areas are experiencing
1: no it's not we haven't experienced it um in any of the cities we're operating in yet but it is that is a bit of a concern um But again, you know, I can't see it does seem to be at the detriment of tenants because if you're a tenant, you you're looking to save up, to buy your own house, if that's really what what the government's trying to encourage is home ownership, you need to be able to save money. And if landlords are going to be forced to pay the additional council tax that is going to be passed back on to the tenants again and mm. when that happens rents are going to go up and this vicious cycle continues so
0: yeah it's just bizarre isn't it this is just the way that the government keep throwing it back um and eventually it is only the tenant that's going to be responsible for it it's nuts it really is andy there's a lot of um, talk about you know passive income um around you know social media and 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 people that um talk an awful lot about being financially free and that kind of thing. So are in your experience, are HMOs passive? Is it something we could put underneath that heading?
1: No. <laughs> <laughs> definitely not, Rick. You know, definitely not. I'm not sure, yeah, you know, I'm not sure you know I'm not sure running any business is, is really passive either. But you know, certainly running HMOs is things go wrong you've got to plan ahead Um, and if you leave somebody else to plan all this if you outsource every component of this ultimately your investment won't won't you know work as well as as it perhaps could do Um, and you know one thing that i've um, definitely learned to do is expect the unexpected it is that call uh, you know in the middle of the night to say that uh, there's there's water coming through the ceiling Um, it is a tenant that has got to drop out because some personal circumstances um, and it's something unforeseen. That does happen and um, that pattern continues. And you, you know, as a landlord, you've got to be able to have the time to deal with that sort of thing. And that doesn't mean you need to go around and you need to be, you know, doing the, the plumbing of the toilets and things like that. But taking care and nurturing your investment, um, you know, it still does take time and effort. And, and that means it's not passive.
0: Andy, you mentioned that you do get calls, you know, at two o'clock in the morning with water leaking through the ceiling. Are you, is that you? Do you, t- are you taking calls?
1: Yeah. So I, um, we have an emergency sort of number. So out of hours, the, uh, the, the office uh, number will divert to an emergency line or they, uh, you know, somebody can select to report an emergency. And, and yeah, generally speaking, I carry that emergency number, although, you know, me and Nick do share it. So we'll kind of do six months on, six months off. Um, right.
0: Okay. I suppose if there's two of you there, you've always got cover. We've got a very different system. Um, and I personally, um, I don't get involved in the management of our properties at all. Um, because you can, you know, when you mention the word landlord, and, and if you are involved and if you are on the tools, then, you know, in my view, you are a landlord rather than an investor. I don't think you are a landlord. Andy, I, I know that you are an investor, um, but I think it's very easy to get tied up in the business. And if you're in the business, then it's very hard to work on it and I know that for the new investors that are coming into the market you've got to start somewhere and yes I get that you've got to be on the tools but if you want to grow I think it's very important that you've got at least somebody working on the business for you Um, and very often that is that is you isn't it so um, okay really interesting Andy when people approach you and I do know that there are a lot of new investors that listen to this podcast an awful lot of experienced investors as well what would you say the top couple of questions that you get asked on a regular the basis are
1: one of them is is always how to raise private finance um, yeah that's that's one of the big big ones because that is the biggest barrier to entry for most people um, and the other one I, I get asked a lot about um, floor plans and specs and in relation to do you think this will work and um, it's very difficult to answer that sort of question without having the context of the kind of the, the the entire opportunity, the location, what the achievable rent is, you know the size of the population that you're targeting, um, how much your money in versus money out is, that sort of thing. Um, and for me, you know i there is a pattern to that question and the types of people that asked it and it and it all it is 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 inexperience. and um, with with the right advice, the right guidance and experience, people get, pass that very very quickly and they develop their confidence and then all of a sudden they can appraise deals very quickly they can marry the deals with the investors that, that, that they're being contacted by as well
0: you know the the most um, frequently asked question that i've had this month is well it's actually quite a common one Uh, is how do I get a commercial valuation on Mm. my property (laughs) yeah Uh, that that is a very common one I think a lot of people think they can take on a HMO turn it sorry take on a a single let dwelling turn it into a HMO and then get this super duper valuation is that something that you've experienced
1: I've been asked this a lot I've seen it asked in um the sort of the property forums that we um um, we chat in as well, Rick, and I've answered it a number of times publicly. It's not something that we personally have ever done or ever tried to do. I don't believe, you know, in 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 that as a sensible method of investing. You know, to me, it looks like overgearing. Um, I think there's a point where it's not a residential property and it is a commercial property. And for me, that's sort of around sort of the, the, the eight bed mark. Beyond that. I think the size and the, the type of property isn't ever really going to lend itself to to, to being used residentially.
0: Yeah. I mean, and you everything know, else, fact,
1: four beds, five beds. Yeah, the
0: fact, yeah, they're, the, they're, the, they're, the fact is that you can't you can't just take on a normal house and then make the living room into a bedroom. And then expect to get a commercial valuation when it's sat next to an identical house next door on either side um, that is valued as bricks and mortar. So, you know, what we kind of say is the rule of thumb, everybody, is, you know, stress test it to bricks and mortar. If you get any over and above that, then that's cool. But very often in my experience, Andy, and I think you're you're the same, is that the valuations are coming back as bricks and mortar. You know what? And sometimes, sometimes a valuation at bricks and mortar Um, for us and our experience has been higher than it has been at commercial Um, you know when we did we've just completed a a quite large project we got the individual flats inside valued um, as individual flats on bricks and mortar and that gave us a much higher valuation than it would have been if it had just been valued as one block so it doesn't always work Andy. Um, wow. I can mean, remember 45 minutes into this already. I know your staff are going to be arriving soon. Do you uh, educate yourself? Andy? Do you continue with that? Or is it something that you've, you've stopped doing?
1: Yeah, I hugely, um, I, th- I think a lot of people assume that I go on and sort of talking to the, the property groups just to sort of share what, what I've got to, 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 you know, to with, with other people, but actually I take a huge amount Um, quietly from other people as well. And I ask questions and I just absorb what other people have experienced and specialise in. So, you know, my strengths are absolutely not around legislation um, and they're not around tenancy law and they're not around financing Um, so I you know for me I look to those resources for that sort of thing especially in in your group Rick Mm. Um,
0: you don't have to be a specialist at everything Andy do you when you're in business you know Um, and I think it's something that I'm I'm you know, I'm great at doing the legislation and the tenancy law because I come from a police background. So for me, that that comes easy. But all the other little bits now, interior design for me, it doesn't come naturally. I don't do that. So we've got other people in the office that do that for us. And my wife, Lorraine, actually does most of our interior design work because those are her skills and I think you know it's fair to say that you can't be expected to know everything I've got a tax specialist that looks after our accounts and we employ a full-time bookkeeper in the office as well so all of that you know is leveraging to other people's skill sets
1: absolutely and um, you know I look around my office now it's a little bit early and they're not here yet but Nick is an accountant we've got Roxana who's another accountant, um we have sort of a financial administrator, you know, all this finance element to, to running a business like this, you know, mm. I could never do. Um so I rely on them to to be able to do it and to to kind of help me where I need um help to help them. Um yeah you know, we've got two portfolio managers who are very, very good when it comes to um property maintenance and management and tenants uh, management and tenancy law and things like that. So yeah absolutely I think you know, one of the strengths of any, um, entrepreneur or good businessman is, is to recognize your weaknesses, Rick. And I think that's something that, um, I've had to develop as well. I think when I was younger and you, know, you do one project and it goes well, and you think you've kind of cracked the code and, um, and actually, you know, as you get a bit older and you, you, you kind of wise up to the fact that actually you, you, there's so much more that, um, you, you, you. You could know, but you don't necessarily need to know. It. It's making sure that you you have the right team around you.
0: Yes, definitely. And I think Henry Ford nailed it, didn't he? When he said, "You can ask me any question about my business, and I will find somebody that knows the answer."
1: Mm, exactly
0: Uh, and that's what we should really try to adopt andy this has been an awesome interview um and it's great you know having this time really just for me to to chat with you as well to catch up with your journey and to speak to you directly rather than having you know the um the conflab on on facebook and social media i know that um, i always ask this question i always say to people cat or dog i know the answer to this because i love the fact that you take your dog to work with you don't you
1: hugo comes to work every day um (laughs) He's kind of, he's my biggest fan and he's everybody's best mate. My staff can all type with one hand because they've got to have one hand on Hugo's head at the same time.
0: And so everyone that's listening, Hugo's a golden retriever, the most beautiful looking golden retriever you will see. And if you follow Andy on Facebook, you'll see that he takes his dog to work with him. And that's the office dog now. I wish I could do that with mine. I've got two labs. They're crazy. Um, They just would not sit still. They would just drive everybody bananas. How old is Hugo?
1: He's three, believe it or not, he's sat right next to me, fast fast asleep, but it won't be for long, because as soon as everyone walks through the door, um, his day starts and he gets excited.
0: And starts walking around uh, and, and socializing with all of your staff.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's awesome.
0: Andy, thank you so much for the interview. It's been great. I'm sure that loads of people have got probably a few more questions they would like to ask you. So how can they contact you? How can the listeners drop you a line?
1: Sure. Generally, the best place is on Facebook. Rick, just drop me a message or on Instagram, or people can email me. It's Andy at SmartProperty.co.uk.
0: Andy, absolutely awesome. I'm going to let you get on with your day now. Thank you so much for joining us. And again, people, if you want to drop Andy a line, then you can go in. Um, you can go and stalk him on Facebook, and he's really giving with all of the the questions that people ask. So, thank you, Andy. Have a really great day.
1: Thanks so much, Rick.
0: Cheers. Thank you everyone for listening to today's podcast and it would be great if you could leave us a nice review if you are inspired by all of the journeys that other people are going through that we interview on the show. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can contact me at rick at Solutions.co.uk, or you can even call the office on 01886 834 800. Thank you folks. See you on the next show.